Welcome to Health System CIO's interview with Michael Carr, Vice President, Chief Technology Officer, and Chief Information Security Officer with Health First. I'm Anthony Guerra, Founder and Editor-in-Chief. We'll get to our interview in a moment, but first, this brief word from our sponsor. Your organization doesn't compromise on patient care, so why compromise on the endpoints you deploy? iGel is the ultimate operating system for healthcare organizations using VDI, DAS, or SAS. And we're offering a free laptop on which to experience iGel's no compromise OS. Just visit iGel.com slash why compromise. Michael, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Very good. Looking forward to having a nice chat. Uh, why don't we start off? You tell me a little bit about your organization and your role. Sure. Um, well, Health First is an integrated delivery network that primarily serves uh, in Brevard County, Florida. So we're about an hour east of Orlando uh, along the Space Coast. Um, our organization has a health plan, uh, four hospitals, and about a 500-member employed uh, provider group. Uh, my role is as Chief Technology and Information Security Officer. In that role, I'm accountable for our core platforms, technology, development, um, architecture, our data and analytics, and our information security program. Excellent. Very good. All right. Uh, I always like to find out, um, especially for CISOs, how, how you wound up where you are. So tell me a little bit about your career path that got you to the security side of healthcare technology. Sure. Uh, going back before healthcare, my, my background is in finance. Uh, that's where I started my career. Um, I spent about the last 15 years in healthcare, uh, about the last eight or so with, with more of a specialization focus around uh, security. Uh, honestly, I got into security by accident. Um, and uh, what I found is uh, an affinity to, to my finance background in terms of, you know, more not just around audit and compliance, which, you know, a lot of people think that, that that's a natural fit. It's really more about, you know, um, how, do, how do we take something that we know is important, um, like information security? How do we make it actionable? How do we make it measurable? Uh, and once I understood the impact of security on, on, on not just healthcare, but across all of our critical industries, it really drew me into it. So being able to take my, my finance background, my operations background, and then, like I said, my, my experience in, in IT, uh, it really kind of helped me understand, once again, the importance and, and the, the criticality of, of information security to healthcare. And uh, you were in infrastructure, too. We know lots of security folks come out of infrastructure. Why do you think that is? Because um, I think initially a lot of the security work focuses on on the blocking and tackling of, of core technology. Um, you know, are you patching your servers? Um, are you know, do you have privileged access set up? Do you, how do you um, provision access to users? So I think a lot of the work initially started there, um, and and now uh, so a lot of those leaders that kind of started in the early days that were really focused around the infrastructure pieces. Um, uh, you know, kind of understand what it takes to to, to really uh, grow and mature a program, um, and understand the technical as well as the, the business side of security. Very good. So you started at Health First in January of 2020, and we all kind of know what that coincided with. Uh, that's got to be fun starting a new job when the <laughs> pan, when a, when a once in a century pandemic hits. Absolutely. It was a, I tell people it was a, it, it was a great timing because in selfishly uh, it helped me learn the organization 
uh, and, and you saw with how quickly organizations had to pivot um, uh, to address the, the both the, you know, sending the remote workforce home, um, addressing some of the emergent technologies that people were looking at, knowing at the same time we had to secure that. Uh, it really helped me kind of see how the organization operates and the priority they, they place on information security. And everybody kind of says uh, from a security point of view, they had to accept elevated risk profile because they had to roll out technology so fast to respond to what the business needed, what the clinicians needed. Uh, and then there was a process of when things quieted down, uh, going back and reviewing. Did you experience something like that? We saw a little bit of that. We were fortunate that that a lot of the foundational work had already been deployed around, you know, our our. our um, our infrastructure to, to support and enable remote remote work. Uh, our our clinical clinical partners were already working on um, um, you know virtual visits, and so uh, we had a little bit. But but I think the organization, like I said, had already done the groundwork. So a lot of ours was okay. You know wh where do we really have increased risk with some of these new capabilities, um, and and how do we expedite the process versus just accepting risk. Yeah, and that always, uh, I hear that from some executives that they say they felt they had uh, done a good amount of work and they were just sort of, they'd done the work, Not they, they weren't lucky because doing the work isn't lucky, it's, it's doing your job right. Um, but it makes me think of technical debt and just how dangerous technical debt can be. You can't handle the next challenge you didn't see coming if you've got big technical debt. If you're sort of up to speed, as you mentioned, you're in a position to, to react better. Your thoughts around that? Yeah, that's. I think that's a great point. Um, if you're if you're constantly playing catch up, um, uh, it, it it takes a lot of your focus and energy. Um, and you know that's where I think some of that uh, risk acceptance comes into play of people saying, "Hey, I know I've got these issues out here. Um, I know I don't have multi-factor. I know I don't have you know my DMZ secured in that." So I think uh, if you're having to do that work first, um, it does. Uh, it, it definitely shifts your priorities. And, and um, you know, I, I could see where organizations would say, hey, we had to take on a lot more risk because we knew we had these issues. We weren't able to mitigate them because we had to respond to the business need. Yeah. And it, as you said, it's, it's the key is to, to put the argument correctly or the case correctly to those who are going to approve or not approve the budget, because sometimes you're, you're addressing what isn't currently perhaps a critical problem, right? So you have to articulate mm -hmm. it correctly. And, and just your thoughts around articulating that the right way. I think that is the number one challenge facing information security professionals today is how do you articulate risk uh, in, in, um, as in the context of all the organizational risks. Um, and I think the ability to quantify, the ability to measure, uh, and, and really to help people understand if everything is a critical issue, everything is, uh, oh my goodness, we have to respond to this, you, you really lose their, their you, you lose credibility with that group. So yeah, I think for us, it's, it's you know, how do we have a an honest conversation around what we really think the risk is, um, and moving away from, uh, from that kind of fear, uncertainty, doubt to a more reasoned, hey, we think these are the top three things, this is why we think we need to uh, mitigate them, and if you accept this risk, just understand what you're Accepting. Right, right. So we had your CIO, William Walters, uh, on a, a webinar recently. Um, he's a very data-driven guy. I think you'd probably agree with that. Absolutely. Uh, so he's not going to want gut feelings. He's going to want numbers. He's going to want data, and it's probably got to be good. So what's it like to work for someone like that as a CISO? Um, and it sounds like that probably jives well with with what you bring to the table. You said you're probably a very data-driven guy as well. 
Absolutely. And I think in some ways it makes it easier because you know what the bar is, uh, you know, it's expected. And so wh whether it's our frontline engineers or other leaders, we always say, hey, you know, um, let's stay away from the oh, my goodness, or, or hey, we heard about or best practice. Let's let's take a step back. Let's look in context of our program. Where is it in terms of those key risks that we've identified? And then how do we show the value? And once again, one of the things we look at is, hey, we, we there's a lot of things we know we need to do it. We know we need to do MFA. We know we need to patch all those kind of things. How do you take it back to the business and how do you show uh, take that data-driven approach to show people, hey, we've done these things and here's the impact and, and, and here's the benefit to the organization. And one of the things we've been able to do is look at our cyber insurance rates and, and compare that to our peers. And what we've seen is as we've matured our programs, our, our, our rates are, are um, favorable compared to, to the industry. And I think that's one of the things we can point to from a data perspective, say, hey, we've done these things. Here's where the cost avoidance, real cost avoidance has happened at, um, as we've looked to implement a lot of these things that people may see as friction, uh, but really they're, they're about uh, protecting the enterprise. So you mentioned cyber insurance, uh, and we've heard from lots of CISOs about what a difficult process that has become, especially if uh, one individual, I don't know, they'd even been dropped for some reason. So they weren't renewing, they were trying to get new mm -hmm. coverage, and it was just Awful. I would imagine renewing is a little less difficult, but still the bar, even if you're renewing, the bar seemed to have gone up dramatically, uh, both in terms of what you're required to have in place. And even if you're lucky enough to to prove that you have those things, the cost, the deductibles, people talking about possibly self-insuring, which I suppose just means socking away money for, for the inevitable. Um, but give me your thoughts. It about the cyber insurance market, is it as dramatic as all that? Is it, oh my God, this is horrible, or is it, is it not quite that that degree? I, I think it, uh, I think it varies by organization, and, and it, it kind of matches to your organizational maturity around around your security program. Uh, we're fortunate; we have a great partnership with our legal group and our risk group, um, and that uh, you know we. Uh, we, we've, our program is, is not new. So we, you know, we've had some, you know, some data we can show them, we've shown them the maturity, we showed them the progress. Um, and so what we've found is a lot of the things they asked for, we, we've already either implemented or ha or working to implement, um, you know, adopting a framework, sticking to that, I think is a hard thing. We use an SCSF and it's not so important which framework uh, is, is as long as you adopt and commit to a framework and show the path. And and uh, I think for us, a lot, a lot of the things where they would say, hey, have you done this? And if the answer is no, you know, why? And we can say, hey, because we identified A, B, and C as our key priorities. So so it really, it really uh, helps shape that conversation. I think from a financial perspective, it, it's very expensive. I think uh, what our insurer told us is, you know, rates went up over 100% last year, uh, for, for a lot of organizations, that was the average. Ours was less than that. Um, and so, um, you know, this year we're, we're in the process of that now. And it is a long, tedious, painful process. And I think part of it is because there is no industry standard around information security. I know a lot of organizations have adopted NCSF, not everyone. So everybody's got a different playbook. What one, you know, even the insurers look at diff different information. So I think just gathering the data to tell the story is a lot of the difficulty. Yeah, you get the feeling probably at some point that they don't really want to give you an insurance policy. <laughs> we're making it so expensive and so hard. Like if you walk away, we're good. No problem. Have a nice day. 
Well, yeah, and I, I think this is where, you know, as an industry healthcare, they've been, they've been bit and, and they feel like they, you know, we're, we're high risk as an industry. Um, and, and not just because of the value of our data. I think it's because of the disparity of maturity across uh, healthcare organizations. You know, you know, if you're a very small organization, it's expensive to do security well. And, and so I see from their perspective where when they look at us as a population, uh, you know, we're, we're high risk. We're, we're like a teenage driver. Uh, yes, so, yeah. so uh, you know, we, we've got a, we, we as an industry have an opportunity to, to, to change that, I think. And you're probably like, but look at me, but I'm do I'm different than everyone else, right? Absolutely. Well, and that comes back to the data-driven approach is, is, is um, you know, how do you, how do you move, how do you show them not just I've implemented ABC controls, but I think measuring the work and measuring the outcomes are really important uh, because I do think that, you know, it, like with any conversation, uh, you know, that, that, uh, financial conversation, there's the, there's the brass tacks if you have to do these things, but then there's the conversation piece of, well, tell me why you're different, explain it. Mm-hmm. And once again, if it, that's where the da- that data-driven approach is, is really beneficial. Yeah, it makes me think again of technical debt and probably the last place you want to have technical debt is in the security area because uh, you can't play catch up. It's over. Absolutely. So if they come in and they say, do you have these founda- foundational pieces of security infrastructure in place? These are the things... And you don't like you're in a bad spot. Forget about getting insurance. You're in a dangerous spot to begin with. Absolutely. And, and a lot of it is, is um, you know, they don't ask for a lot of collateral documentation. It's a it's a questionnaire. Do you do these things? Yes or no. And so, you know, my assumption is that that the, the risk is you can you could say you're a lot more mature than you are. Uh, but if a breach comes, if, if you're uh, one of those unfortunate organizations that, that has some kind of compromise, and they come back and say, "Hey, but you said you did ABC and you didn't." Um, that's where that's where they're, you know, I think it's really going to come through, and you know, my, my, you know, probably denied claims and, and and that kind of stuff. So it really is kind of an honor system, uh, which once again goes back to not having a common framework and 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 uh, to measure um, information security maturity across healthcare organizations. So you make an excellent point, and and I totally agree with you. It's the one case where a questionnaire doesn't hurt the party issuing the questionnaire they don't have to worry about it because they say hey you fill it out if we find as you said if we find anything you lied or you we're just not gonna pay so it's but but it's much different so it makes me think of questionnaires Hmm. now we talk about third-party risk third-party vendor risk management a lot of health systems send out questionnaires and the vendors fill out the question now they're trying to get the business Mm -hmm. There's a big incentive to just say, yeah, sure, we do all this stuff. (laughs) And sometimes at the health system, if they're very busy or understaffed, there's an incentive for whoever is dealing with the questionnaires to say, hey, they filled out the questionnaire. Everything looks good. We're good to go. You don't have the same checks and balance that you do with the insurance company because they could just not pay. Mm -hmm. Because if if you take that questionnaire from a vendor at face value and there's something not right about that and there's a breach, that's not the same dynamic. It's on you at that point. Does that make sense? And then just talk to me about third-party vendor management. Yeah, uh, it, it absolutely makes sense. And, and I think third-party vendor management is one of the hardest things that organizations have to deal with. Um, you know, it's not just you and your business partners. It's it's business partners of your business partners or business partners to the business partners of your business partners. So um, I think one of the things we partner with a third-party organization that does the risk assessment for the, you know, our, our business associates and, and our potential partners. 
But you know, we've we've had a an example where we had a a, a third party to a third party who was uh, you know high trust, you know HIPAA certified. They'd done everything, and they still had a um, a ransomware event, right? So so I think the challenge is you, even if you have a team that's really good, goes through the SOC two, asks all the right questions, and the organization is transparent, is willing to tell you about the security program, you know, it's still only you know skin deep, you know, an inch deep. You're not going to be able to get uh, as comfortable as you would like. So, I think having a process, a regular process of annually or, or semi-annually reviewing those, um, it, um, is necessary. But but it's time-consuming and it's difficult. And I would say for us and a lot of organizations. Um, you know, it's, it's one of our, our key risks and, and, and one of those areas that's the hardest to mitigate. I mean, you could be talking about what hundreds of vendors, correct? Several hundred. And we're, and, we're a mid-sized organization. So you take a large organization, it is, it is, uh, it, it could be overwhelming. Several hundred vendors. And let's say you've revamped your process of bringing on vendors. So you say, okay, we have a new process. We feel good about the ones we're bringing on. You have hundreds that are already on. Right. So what are we doing about them? Are we going to go back and look at everybody? And then, oh, by the way, let's say we check somebody out. That's one snapshot in time. Six months down the road, they could have changed their practices. They could have, you know, a lot of things. So it's everything's constantly moving and fluid. Um, And I'll get more of your thoughts about that. But it makes me think of the medical device security. Mm -hmm. Now, that's another sort of octopus that's hard to get your arms around. But any more about third party risk? No, I think you covered it well. It it is, you know, it's one of the key areas we talk a lot about. It is it is challenging. I think we do a pretty good job, but it's still uh, it's still a key key concern. And and the work never stops. And as as we as more and more vendors come into to the to the space uh, to healthcare. Um, what we find is less and less mature organizations. This is the, the not the downside, but um, a lot of new startups that, that don't mm-hmm. have a security program say, hey, we're, we're going to solve this really unique problem that no one else has done. And hey, we've never been in healthcare. What do we need to do? Uh, you know, it, it, so or even quite honestly, security vendors and something we've talked about in other groups is all these new security vendors. Um, you know, I, I think we need to approach those more rigorous, rigorous, rigorously than we do mm-hmm. normal vendors. Mm-hmm. But, you know, even with them, I think there's an assumption that a security vendor it has a secure uh, culture within the organization. And I don't think we can we can make that assumption. Let's talk a little bit about business continuity planning. Um and, you know, we brought I brought up medical device security. Um, one of the things that struck me over the last few years is the degree to which IT professionals, IT security professionals need to work directly with clinicians as it relates to business continuity planning. You can't just sit in your silo in IT and say, you know, and figure it out over there because you have to understand which applications are used by who and in what context. And oh, by the way, if there's a ransomware event and this goes down, what are the implications? What communication needs to happen from from security to the business? Um, You need to know who to talk to. What what are they going to do? And then there must be a lot of discussions that have to take place if you have to go to paper and to come back. I mean, we need to talk constantly, Mm -hmm. right? So just tell me about your thoughts on the degree to which IT professionals need to interact with the business in order to do the job of business continuity planning. Yeah, and this is something we talk a lot about living on the space coast, being in Florida with with natural disasters, hurricanes, and so we we have the the the, the backdrop of of having 
every year for, for years having to plan for, in some cases, respond to, to a hurricane. We, we've taken that and, and expanded that to not just be a hurricane planning, but to your point around business continuity. I feel very strongly business continuity should be owned by the business. Um, IT is a piece of it, right, in terms of the, the technical capabilities. Uh, we're fortunate in that we have, we have a really strong clinical informatics group that understands the workflows, understands the technology. And so, um, you know, we're able to have conversations of, hey, when it's really critical, what are the five, seven, ten things that you need? What is the impact if you don't have A, B, and C? Um, and then, you know, making sure that people know how to n- not just uh, mentally, but we've actually tested that, okay, they know how to go down to the downtime procedures. We've tested it. They used it. They understand the impact. And as you said, the hard part is great. Now, now once things are back up and you need to recover, what, how long is that going to take? What's necessary to do that? So I, I think this business continuity thing is, is uh, everywhere I've been, it's been a challenge partly because nobody really ever wants to own business continuity because it's, it's really hard and messy. Uh, but I think at Health First, we, we have that partnership with our um, disaster prepare, emergency preparedness group, our clinical informatics team, the technical group and operations. So um, it, it's, it's um, yeah, it, it's a key piece of our information security program. You, you have to be comfortable, right? You have to be comfortable saying, I, I feel good with what we have. You don't want to figure it out on the fly, right? Because the number one thing your board and CEO expects of the IT department is like, okay, I get it. Nobody's 100% secure there. It's not if, but when I get it, right? That's what we all say. It's not if, but when, Mm -hmm. but you guys and ladies had better be getting us back up as quickly as anybody could i want you to do it as well as the best out there i want you to do it as quick as i understand we're going to go down you're going to get us up you're going to make sure you have this worked out to where right i mean is that the attitude from the board absolutely um and i think for for us you know i think it starts with going back is like what what is your key risk what are you most concerned about our board our senior leadership you know we're healthcare. Our, our 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 primary concern is we want to make sure we're able to provide the best health care to our community. Uh, and so with that understanding, okay, what is really critical for us to do that? And I think it goes back to prioritization of, of what are those mission critical systems? Um, there's a lot of, you know, we have several hundred applications that we use across the organization. Which of those are really the most important? And do we have the right disaster recovery business continuity processes? Have we tested them? You know, are we confident we can meet an RTO, RPO, whatever that looks like for the organization? Uh, and that's where that engagement, that conversation, it can't be an IT driven um, decision about what's most important. Uh, and then we We've got to have commitment to actually test that. I think that's the last piece is it's great to have a documented plan, um, but but if you've never tested, if you've never exercised it, um, good, good luck in the case of a real disaster. Commitment to test. That's, uh, I would imagine it's, everyone's busy, right? So the, when you, there have to be clinicians involved in these tests to some Absolutely. degree. Yeah. So is it hard to get them to participate? Um, it, it is when you're talking about you know, you're bringing down your EMR uh, or that kind of scenario. And mm-hmm. so what we found is what we try to do is do the technical backend test and how do we and then how do we get our users? Uh, how do we take advantage of um, uh, how do we take advantage of patching windows or system maintenance? Right. Um, there's opportunities that we know the systems are going to go down uh, or be unavailable. Um, how do we leverage those? So it's not a, hey, in the middle of the day on a Tuesday, we're going to do a DR test, right? Um, you know, that's not going to fly. But I think you can work within kind of your normal patching maintenance downtime windows uh, to to, um, uh, to replicate what a disaster scenario would look like. 
Uh, what about sort of tabletops where it's not that they're going to be not be able to use the system, but it's that I need them in the room, like where I need them on the line, so to speak. We're going to go through a big tabletop. And uh, is that something you do uh, where you have to get clinical leaders involved in these business continuity tabletops? We, we um, at a macro level across the organization, yes, uh, our, our emergency preparedness group does that with, hey, we have a scenario, um, um, you know, some kind of disaster event. It could be a natural disaster. It could be a, a cyber event impacting a third party. Uh, they sit down with those leaders and really say, okay, this has happened. You're cut off. What are you going to do? What are your processes? We have a part to play in that. Uh, but I, I, that's an area where I really credit uh, Health First Leadership and, and our emergency preparedness group is that th it's been a, a well-exercised muscle that, that people know they have to plan for because of the likelihood of a, of a, of a storm. Mm -hmm. But it really translates to any kind of disaster, whether it's technical or, 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 or you right. Know, environmental. Right. All right. Um, let's talk about trends. Um, anything that you're seeing, any trends you're looking at following that uh, maybe not every one of your colleagues is focused on, something that sort of caught your eye, either something coming or anything like that? I don't know if it's necessarily a, a trend, but but anyway, there's a lot of debate, uh, and and this is around uh, measurement, um, and and you know how do you quantify risk? Um, I think this is one of the weakest spots around, uh, not just in healthcare. I think across a lot of industries is uh, going back to that question of being data driven. Um, how do you move from a control based framework of a maturity, which is good, but what's after that? How do we get to the outcome base? How do we show the business value of our work? Um, and, and so I think for me, that's an area we, our group talks a lot about. Um, and, and, you know, there's difference of opinion across the industry about how valuable that is. And, you know, um, but I think it's really important. I think, I think the next iteration, that next generation of security leaders need to be business. I mean, today and we need to be business leaders. They need to think of business terms. They need to be able to take a risk and, and match it up with a a competitive risk or a um, you know an acquisition risk. I, I, I think we have to be able to have that same conversation uh, that our finance, our operations partners do. So that's one area that we spend a lot of time on. I think a second thing for us, and, and you mentioned this around the, the rationalization, um, and, and this is an area where where I talk a lot with our our security vendors and partners is is um, I, I, I want to move away from the, the uh, point solution to solve a point problem. Um, and a lot of times this whole best of breed of if you've got 10 best of breed solutions, I think it's really hard um, to, to uh, stitch those together. And not just from a data perspective, but from a, a training, from an adoption, um, you know, more vendors to manage, more things to maintain. Uh, so I think for us, we're trying to winnow that, you know, kind of narrow that, that scope of vendors and really challenge them. If you just do one thing and you may be the best in the world at that one thing, I don't know if I need best in the world at that one thing, right? So I may just settle for good enough knowing that I've got other mitigating, compensating controls around that. So, so those are two areas we're focused a lot on is the measurement, the, the, the outcome driven, the quantitative analysis of our risk, and then how do we shrink down that portfolio of security vendors and really challenge them to do more than, than just, you know, one thing. Yeah, so we've done webinars, uh, a number of webinars on application rationalization, and that's an interesting process in and of itself. And one of the things that comes up there is though IT may want to reduce the number of vendors and maybe even be assigned to reduce the number of vendors, it's still a process of convincing the users, right? Because you as IT don't get to pick and you don't get to just shut one off. If you say, hey, these mm -hmm. two are pretty similar. We're going to get rid of this one. 
there's a process there of getting the users to buy in and say, you know, and get them to say, you know what, that other one does do 90% of what ours does. Mm -hmm. So we can live with that other 10% because it's not critical. But your thoughts again about it's, it's IT doesn't run the show. It's support usually. And it's, mm -hmm. it's got to persuade rather than order. Yeah. And I think for us, we, part of it is when you have 400, 500 applications, it's really hard to know what every single one does. Uh, so we've spent a lot of time and effort mapping not just our applications and, and but kind of what functionality, what, what, um, what, what business units are used by, uh, what functionality they provide. Um, we have, uh, I would say we've had marginal success around the rationalization. Um, a lot of it has been helped by end of life or, or kind of, um, you know, maybe a regulatory requirement that a vendor doesn't meet. Um, but the way we try to approach it is, is, um, is give, them, give them the option, give them the choice. But once again, go back and show them the data. If you can't tell them what the cost of having a secondary system is, uh, and if I'm in if I'm in their seat, I'm like, well, there's no cost, so what, what does it matter? Why should mm -hmm. I change if I have to change my business process? So I think we have to tell the whole story. Uh, I think we have to look at the risk. I think we have to look at the cost. I think we have to look at the the administrative overhead. Um, and, and how do we build that? How do we build that trust that you know we're not just trying to make it easier for us, but really this does uh, this does solve a problem. One of the things my CIO says is, if you're just moving from Coke to Pepsi, who cares? There has to be something in it for them, right. and we need to be able to tell them it's not just moving to, from Coke to Pepsi. There is a benefit to doing this, and this is what it looks like. If you can't do that, um, you know, th th there's no reason for them to to commit to that change. All right, just a couple more questions. Uh, we're almost out of time here. Um, I did see on your LinkedIn profile that you are an Airborne Ranger with the Army. You you were, so that's pretty cool. Thank you for your service. Thank you. Um, so the question being, what did you learn in that type of work during your service that helped you be a successful executive? Wow, uh, I would say two things. Uh, one is you need to learn uh, those people around you. Need you need to learn what their role is, mm. um, and because you never know what's going to happen. Uh, and so uh, I, I've taken that to heart, uh, I, and I've been fortunate in my career that people have wanted to teach me. Um, and so I, I think first is understanding that. I think the second thing is. Um, is the, the little things. It's, it's um, as William, my boss says, you know, brilliant at the basics. One of the things that the, the military and the Rangers, you know, um, uh, really pounded into us is you need to be brilliant at the basics. You need to understand and be able to do all the little things. If you can't do the little things, you can't do the big things. Uh, and, and it's things like uh, in the military, it was, you know, your physical fitness, it was your attention to detail, it was cleanliness of your weapons and those things, which you, at the time you may have thought were petty, but looking back, really what they're saying is if you can't do those little things, I can't trust you with the big things. Uh, and I think that's a lesson I've tried to keep in carrying my career and, and impart upon others is if you want to do the big things, show mm -hmm. people you can do the little things well, uh, and, and you'll get that opportunity. Excellent. Very good. All right. Last question. Any final piece of advice for your CISO focusing on that element of your job, your CISO colleagues, uh, uh, let's say you're talking to a CISO at a similar sized health system. Um, what's your best piece of advice for them on, on maybe your key to success, how you've been successful, anything that you haven't mentioned? Um, I think key to success. I, I think from the thing I would, we, we talk about is, um, is the relationships, uh, the non-technical, the non-security relationships. I, I think working with risk, working with legal, um, Helping people to understand that that um, we're um, we're business people first, 
Um, and our job just happens to be to manage the, the technical and the security risk of the organization. Uh, but they need to know that we're as committed to the business outcomes as they are. Uh, when, when you have that trust and confidence, uh, it's really easy to get support and buy-in. If you don't have it, it's almost impossible to get that buy-in. Right. So it's, uh, you're as focused on patient care as they are. Absolutely. We have the same goals, the same outcomes. Excellent, Michael. That was really, really great. Wonderful. I want to thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much.